turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to our conversation. Waleed Shobat, my guest. Waleed, if you're not familiar with his work in ministry, is a former Palestinian terrorist and um, joins us now as we're talking about uh, what's been going on with the changes uh, since the fall of the Mubarak regime in uh, Egypt last year. Uh, there had been so much hope of the so-called Arab Spring, but yet as we've seen nation after nation in that region, Tunisia and Libya and Egypt and so on, fall, uh, we're beginning to find out that this Arab Spring is turning into the Islamic winter. Talk a bit about um, what you were sharing just before the break, Waleed, and that is uh, this tactic that's being used by the Muslim Brotherhood that has gained so much power, almost 75-80% of the seats in the Egyptian parliament now under their control. Uh, what exactly are they up to right now, and, and what's going on with the changes in relationship to Sharia law there? Well, uh, it is actually a tactic titled Maruna. M, like Mary, U-R-U-N-A. In fact, people could look it up and look at my research by just plugging my name, Shubat and Maruna. It was a doctrine that was prescribed by, by none other than Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who's the main Muslim Brotherhood intellect. He initiated the doctrine in December, as far back as 1989, December. While in, he was in the, while in the United States, even during an annual conference with the Association of the Muslim Youth Forum with Muhammad Hamidi, who, by the way, is a leading rebel in Libya who participated heavily in the Arab Spring. Hamidi is also the head of the Muslim Brotherhood in Mauritania. So the idea of Muruna is really to pull the wool, pull the, you know, uh, deceive the West in talking about this whole idea of Arab and all of these things, when in fact it is an Islamic spring, and the doctrine really aspires for deception against the West. The doctrine really is a, was a long-term plan. Uh, it should be very great interest to every American. In, in, in what the forum termed the priorities of the Islamic movement in the next three decades, from 1990 to 2020, they plan to attain what they described as what they called the goal of the Islamic movement, which confirms the general leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, Badir, which he made it recently, the statement that uh, they want to basically uh, uh, have Egypt come back and change the society, and I quote it verbatim, to lead society, all of society, to bring back the caliphate to announce jihad, either by arms or by pen or, or by heart. And they talk about global takeover of the world. Muruna was designed to catapult and advance Sharia by using Western means. And if one thinks that Sharia, with its harsh code, is problematic enough, how about the elimination of the kinder, gentler laws of Sharia? Muruna is literally accomplished by permitting behavior normally is is chewed by the Sharia law itself that Westerners logically see more moderate version of Islam. When such prohibitions are suddenly permitted, 
uh, you, you begin to see uh, a change in the Muslim world. Westerners, you know, in fact, uh, are being deceived. Muruna is about going to great lengths to gain interest through uh, a much deeper level of deception, while simultaneously lowering the guard and gaining the support of the what they call the infidels. Uh, in fact, uh, the series of preparing the atmosphere under the uh, what they call the workings of Asia, which is inclusion and Muruna, which is flexibility in this case. And this is the quote that they have in their law, in this doctrine verbatim, translated into English. It says, Sharia's ability to be flexible and inclusive is that it cares for their needs while excusing the burdens Muslims have to endure for the sake of their destiny, it was made lawful for them to have exceptions from the law that are appropriate for them since these exceptions match their general goals to make it easy for humanity. By removing the chains of Sharia law, they were made to adhere in previous Sharia rulings. In other words, let's make null and void Sharia laws that prohibits the Muslim from doing certain things well, by befriending the unbelievers, working in banking, a Muslim girl uh, now is allowed to marry a non-Muslim in the West, as we've seen with the case of Anthony Weiner and Huma Abedin, which her mother, Saliha Abedin, was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, this is why I began to investigate this whole issue. That story then raised a red flag. How could it be possible that Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi of the Muslim Brotherhood allows such a marriage when in Islam it's prohibited. In fact, it, it mandates the death penalty. So the West in this case sees, wow, look, the Muslim Brotherhood has moderated when nothing of the such. It is really a ruse in order to basically put spies in the West. This, this, is, this, is, this is really infiltration, what we're talking about here then. Exactly what it is. In fact, it's infiltration to the point that all the Islamic injunctions, all the uh, prohibitions have been made to be uh, uh, sanctified. In fact, I can uh, give one quote that basically puts an end to the argument. Uh, and this quote from Muruna Doctrine by the Muslim Brotherhood, it states, I quote, When evil and harm conflict as necessities demand, we must then choose the least of the two evils or harms. This is what the experts in jurisprudence decided. If interests and harms and evils conflict or benefits conflict with evils, what is then to be decided is to review each benefit and each evil and its consequences so the minor evils are forgiven for the sake of the greater long-term benefit. In fact, I add what they have stated here, which is, more extreme, he said, they say, the evil is, so, uh, is also accepted even if that evil is extreme and normally considered deplorable. In other words, deplorable evils now are permitted in Islam in order to carry out these interests for the Muslim Brotherhood. Wow, let's pause on that point. We're going to come back. I mean, this again, you talk about the frog and the kettle approach this notion of temporary setting aside of some aspects of Sharia law, as Wally Chobot is suggesting, uh, in order to allow Islam greater ability to penetrate uh, Western life, uh, all with the idea in mind of not becoming a you know, friendlier, uh, uh, newer version of Islam, but rather 
uh, in order to penetrate to have greater influence uh, with a goal in mind of, of uh, doing just that, and that is the changing of our culture and our society. This is serious stuff. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. His latest best-selling book, God's War on Terror, former Palestinian terrorist Walid Shobat. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation tonight with Walid Shobat. Walid is uh, formally involved with the PLO. Uh, he, of anybody in this country, understands exactly what is going on with the so-called Arab Spring, which for many is turning into an Islamic winter. We're talking about the Islamic Brotherhood, or the, or the Muslim Brotherhood, rather, uh, their impact on Middle Eastern politics, most specifically what they've done in Egypt and other parts of the world. And it's interesting because when you talk, Walid, about the degree of uh, the Muruna uh, deception here. Uh, this goes to the highest levels. There are reports that we have read uh, during the fall of regimes in Libya with Gaddafi and in Egypt with Mubarak that the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, has been lauded as, quote, mostly or largely secular and that they have been considered heroes uh, in opening a pathway toward democracy. But is this the case? That's absolutely false not true. The Al-Nahda uh, in Tunisia is very much pro-Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in fact, in all these countries, they're talking about advancing towards Jerusalem, which has nothing to do with any Arab Spring. It, the idea is to topple uh, all Arab regimes and uh, uh, do away with nationalism altogether for the sake of an Islamic utopia. Uh, all the statements coming out of all the Middle Eastern uh, uh, countries that topple their regimes they're talking about advancing Sharia law. They're talking about a utopian uh, conquest of Islam. Uh, in fact, many who are astute to Islamic lying, I'm sure you've heard of the term taqiyya, which uh, allows Islamists to lie, but this is much greater. Uh, with Muruna and the Muslim Brotherhood and advancement of what's happening in the Arab Spring, uh, what was uh, once forbidden by Sharia, from major crimes like Muslims killing Muslims to issues of interest banking that include alliances with infidels, was made temporarily now lawful by Muruna. In fact, I give the exact quote. The, the, the Muruna doctrine states, it is permissible then to have alliances with powers that are non-Muslim. They ask the question, can Muslims work in banks that practice usury? For the young Muslims, they should not leave their jobs in banks and insurance agencies despite that their work is evil, since their experience in these agencies would gain experience for what would benefit the Muslim commerce. Whoever examines the issues in the light of the doctrine of balance, that is Maruna, would find that entry into these arenas is not merely a project, but a preference and a duty. In other words, it is really asking all Muslim communities, to infiltrate the West, to infiltrate the banking systems. In fact, even the issues when it comes to the right to life, the individual rights to life, can be eliminated under this new law. Uh, under the section titled The Necessities of the Group, Qaradawi explains that, and I quote, as Sharia considers the individual needs, it permits many prohibitions and consider the necessities of the community 
Qaradawi is not short of examples and even commands the killing of Muslims whom the unbelievers use as shields, since leaving these unbelievers is a danger to the Muslims. So it is permissible to kill these unbelievers, even if they killed Muslims uh, in the process. So death, mayhem, and even prostitution is sanctioned by the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in fact, that's a topic that it will open the Western eyes about sanctioning prostitution. Because even in Iran, when they sanction the idea of pleasure marriage, I'm sure you've heard of pleasure marriages in Iran, but how many Americans are familiar with misyar marriage, in which um, middlemen can seal uh, deals with Muslim male clients uh, in order to obtain a Muslim woman under a contract called marriage contract for simply giving sexual services? In fact, you can access it yourself on the Internet. For Internet-savvy travelers, there are countless websites like Misyar Online, M-E-S-I-A-R, online, one word, that allow men to arrange these marriages globally, including in the United States, from the comfort of their hotel rooms, in order to basically uh, bring these women for their pleasure marriages. And it's not really a marriage, because the prostitution document says it's a marriage document. Misyar, in fact, was made legal in Saudi Arabia and Egypt, made legal, sanctioned. It is law now in Egypt and Saudi Arabia to commit these acts of whoredom. Uh, Sunnis who approve Misyar condemn, of course, the Shiites for muta. yet they have the same things. What the West needs to understand is that all these things about the Shiites with taqiyya, uh, uh, lying to the enemy, or pleasure marriages, are same, sanctioned in the Sunni world as well, and made lawful in the Sunni world. And in the end, all of this comes down to the matter of, of deception for the purpose of infiltration. And, and once they're able to penetrate Waleed, what becomes the agenda then? Well, the agenda, we've seen it. The penetration already happened, you know. Uh, it's been going on for many years. You have Rashad Hussein, who writes the speech for President Obama. I mean, Americans ought to wake up. I look at the Arabic language, and I see interview between Rashad Hussein, the speechwriter of President Obama, and when he made the speech in Egypt, I could see the interview in Al-Ahram newspaper in Arabic language, in which the editor is asking him, when is the time that you will intervene in the issues of nuclear issues with Iran, and so on and so forth. And, of course, Rashad Hussein, the speechwriter of President Obama, says that I will intervene when the time is right. It's all about timing. It's all about when they gain the foothold in the West by the time they fight people like me and you. And all these people who begin to expose the issues, you could see much of the media talking about anti-Semitism, not that uh, there is uh, uh, racism against Jews, but anti-Semitism is being coined to talk about racism with Muslims, when in fact there is no such thing. Look, America is a country that talks about racism more than any other country in the world. Yet the United States exercises the least amount of racism than any other country in the world. How does the Muslim make the argument that America commits racism against Muslims when the majority of racism that still exists, even in this country, is against Jews? So, you know, this is part of the deception. They, begin, they want to also put in code laws that basically prohibits the freedom of speech in America, in which the Organization of Islamic Council mandated the trial uh, of uh, uh, anyone who says anything against Islam or even critiques Islam to basically even face trial in the Middle East. 
So if, the, if that happens, that means people like myself and even your own program will be under scrutiny and our freedoms are gone. Uh, so all our forefathers, what the Blair and fought for, is for, for, for nil. And this is what the goal is, to take away the freedom of Americans and begin the process of the Islamization of the world. Of course, we know that it's taking place literally right underneath our noses. Get more information, by the way, uh, online at Walid's website, Shobat, it's S-H-O-E-B-A-T, Shobat.com. His latest book is entitled God's War on Terror. Information again on the website at Shobot.com or through Amazon.com. And Wally, always a delight and an education to have you with us, brother. We appreciate your time. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You go to the mall sometimes or maybe shopping, you watch a parent not parenting and the child's running amok throughout the stores, pulling things off the shelves, the whole bit. And you think to yourself, how come somebody doesn't teach that parent how to parent or hold them responsible for their child? There ought to be a law. Well, apparently in Dallas there is one, though it has nothing to do with encouraging parents to parent. In fact, it seemingly has just the opposite effect. You might have heard of this case of a parent whose daughter was engaged in, at the age of 12, no surprise there, engaged in some inappropriate chatting on the cell phone. Happens all the time, right? So dad did what most thinking, caring parents would do, and that is he said to his daughter, taught you not to talk like that, I'm taking your cell phone away. The police were called, and the back end of the story is that he ended up spending a night in jail, had to pay $1,500 in bail, and it went to a jury trial. The father being accused of stealing his daughter's telephone. I guess I would, I would be in a lot of trouble as a parent because at my house it would be you live underneath my roof, I pay for your bills, and until the age of majority... My rules go, and if you don't behave appropriately, the cell phone will be taken away. Can anybody tell me right now listening that's over the age of 18 who doesn't remember a time when mom or dad said when you were 16 or something years old, you acted up, you misbehaved, you didn't do your chores, whatever, and the car keys were taken away from you for the weekend? Happened to me a bunch of times. I guess I should have called the police on my dad and said, hey, he stole my car. Let's try to see if we can't make sense out of what seems to make no sense at all. Dr. Greg Jans joins us. He's a best-selling author of more than 25 books. He is founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources and the author of a new book that probably should be in the hands of every parent that has a child that's 18 or younger. It's called Hooked, The Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. And Dr. Jans, thanks so much for making some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Is there something about this story I'm missing? I mean... Really, this man was arrested for taking his daughter's cell phone because she was texting somebody inappropriately. There's got to be a backstory. Please tell. Oh, me. there's got to be. But what is it? It's it's uh, unbelievable, isn't it? Just simply unbelievable. And uh, the role of this several things that are confused here is uh, we've really uh, probably uncovered quite the conflict that was going on prior to taking the cell phone away. Something else was going on, 
And the other piece is uh, the role of technology with our young people and what's happening. Let's talk about a couple of things. First is a bit of background, or and this will immediately, I think, for most parents listening, say, aha, uh, the, the, the parents of this child are separated. Maybe they were never married. From what I've read, it doesn't appear as if there was ever any wedlock involved. So the daughter lives with mom but comes and visits dad. It was the daughter who had the telephone given to her by mom. Dad took it away when he saw that she was engaged in some inappropriate texting. And so part of this just seems to be a a bit of a a battle between parents. It is. And, of course, the kids are caught in the middle of it. and we know, too, that uh, there could be some different values as it relates to what's acceptable, even in, in text messaging. And uh, is that really private information? If you supply the cell phone and you have a kid who's under 18 and they're texting, is that private information? Well, let's talk what's about your, this because I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen several postings on the web that seem to suggest that there's more than one individual out there that seems to be of the opinion that, you know, this child has her, her rights, and after all, it's an invasion of privacy, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm thinking to myself, really, in, in 2016, knowing the kind of dangers that lurk out there on the Internet, behind uh, social media sites, everything from uh, you know, pedophiles to, uh, well, you just about name it, uh, e- even these days we're seeing kids kidnapped and, and, and being brought into the sex trade as sex slaves, what what thinking logical parent would say, oh, yeah, my daughter at the age of 12 has a quote-unquote, I mean, if you want to help give her a little sense of privacy in terms of, you know, don't don't just walk through the bedroom door without knocking first, that I get. But a child that has a right to privacy on an electronic device under the age of 18, I, what is it that I'm missing here? Well, you know, we're back to... Um Really, are we working on protecting our kids? Um, you know, what we do in our home, and I have two boys, is, um, you know, we know passwords. You share your password, and um, the phone or the smart device goes uh, actually in a charger in mom and dad's closet at a certain time in the evening, or you don't have it the next day. Uh, we talk about things that are, um, you know, downloading an apps. We make it a an open discussion. We know that the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet now is, is age 10, 10 years old. So we're seeing boys 14, 15, 16 really have developed what fits more in the category of sexual addiction. I just read a story, Dr. Jantz, probably over the weekend, about a mother who had her young son, a 10-year-old boy, had his Facebook account linked to hers. So anytime there was a like or a message sent, she saw what was being communicated. Yeah. To discover that he was suddenly communicating with a 30-year-old man who wanted to make arrangements to meet the boy. There was apparently some graphic exchange of conversation. The mother happened to see this, immediately intervened, turned the device over to police who then, posing as this Perp uh, actually set up a meeting. The guy showed up and he got arrested. I mean, those kinds of dangers. Are there parents that are so naive out there that they don't realize that if they don't control these devices pretty strictly, like in the case of this father here, that the kind of risk that they are exposing their children to is the equivalent of saying, hey, let me give you 10 bucks and send you into the seediest part of town for the evening and, you know, come home by 10. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. 
technology, and if you have kids that have been born in the 90s, they're part of the I generation. It's the first tech, uh, generation to be tethered to technology. And there's an underground world, and they're faster and smarter than we are. And every day there's a new app, and kids move in herds. You know, Facebook is old news. We're off to uh, other things. And um, now I can buy an app and put it on my smartphone that looks like a calculator, but it's really a disguised communication tool. Um, we have instant live uh, videoing now. And there's some apps that, like this that the parents ought to really be concerned about. So we've got to involve ourselves in the lives of our kids uh, really from a protection point of view. And again, as, as we're suggesting, this is not necessarily because you're trying to snoop on them or, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an environment where you demonstrate out the gate that you don't trust them. But the level of vulnerability out there is is so incredible. In fact, we'll, we'll pose this question for Dr. Jans and have an answer when we come back after a timeout. When I grew up, granted that was back when the Stone Age was here and there was, you know, no electric light or running water yet, uh, my father insisted that if I was going out for an evening or hanging out with neighborhood kids after a certain time of the day, he wanted to know where I was going to be what parent was at that home, a telephone number to call in case of an emergency, and he insisted upon knowing the parents of the children that I associated with. He said it was just good parenting. That was just to protect me from what might be lurking in the neighborhood. Imagine today where with the Internet, it's the whole planet that we need to be concerned about. So what of that? We'll talk about that when we come back to more of the conversation. Do you believe that your child's so-called right to privacy ought to trump your responsibility to protect your son or daughter? If you were the parent in this Dallas case, 12-year-old daughter inappropriately texting with someone, broken the rules, you say, okay, you break the rules, I'm taking the cell phone away. Is that an appropriate parental response? What about the city of Dallas? Really? They don't have enough crime problems down there that they go and arrest this guy and put him in the hooskow overnight? This ends up going to a jury trial all over the question of the father being charged with stealing his daughter's cell phone because he was disciplining her for inappropriate behavior in texting on said cell phone. I mean, at, at what point do our child's rights end and our responsibility as parents begin? Dr. Greg Jantz, he is best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. We're talking about the shocking case out of Dallas. Fortunately, the judge said, there's no evidence here. Get this thing out of my courtroom. But it, it, it begs the question, should parents not take full responsibility for parenting their children? And since when should the police department, the government, get involved in a case like this? Brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So, split parents here, daughter primarily lives with mom, visiting dad. Dad sees daughter engaged in some inappropriate texting. Rules of the house are you can't behave like that, says the daughter. I'm confiscating confiscating your telephone. The 12-year-old pulls the typical 12-year-old conniption fit. 
goes tattling to mommy, who apparently decides this is a great way to get back at daddy, and then through the police demands that the telephone be returned, otherwise it's considered stolen property. Now, that's that's the lay of the land. What's your reaction? Let's go to San Jose and say good evening to Elaine. Elaine, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Greg Jans on this topic. Good evening. Um, yes, I, it's more of a question, comment type thing. I was listening to Kevin uh, Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman, oh, yes. psychologist, uh-huh. and he was making the point that uh, it, it, in this very exact uh, topic of cell phones, that parents don't realize that the phone belongs to them because they are the one that paid for it. So therefore, if a child abuses the uh, rules and guidelines of the telephone, the, the cell phone, then the parent has every right to take it away from the child. Now, in this particular case, I think because of the way our culture is going, we seem to get things confused as to what and who has a right. And you get the right lawyer out there, and they'll sue for the most ridiculous things, as in this case, I do believe. Um and I'm just glad that the um, judge threw it out. Um, but it, it, the fact that it got that far was kind of interesting to me. But I think you're right on when you say that it's, uh, it was appears that the mom was trying to get back at her ex. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's, really... that, that, that's certainly, I think, a big uh, component here, Elaine. And the other thing that I find of, of, of concern, and Elaine kind of alludes to this, Dr. Jans, and that is the notion that, you know, we're in a day and an age when some of the child psychologists out there say, now, don't don't spank or paddle a child because that's considered uh-huh. to be abusive. So right. then what tools are left to a parent to try and discipline a child in an appropriate fashion if you if if taking away their privileges is abusive and spanking them is considered child abuse and you can't take away the cell phone because now you're stealing property why do we call them children then why don't we just say that they're you know miniature adults That's right well good point you know and I think too another bigger picture is um how do we handle a whole issue of technology with our parenting? We know that um, uh, there's some real dangers right now with kids and technology, and how do we monitor this? What do we do? Um, and how do we set up technology rules for our family and our household, and what's our values there? Um, how do we use it for good? So these are all important questions. You have a broken uh, family. Uh, this gets even more complicated because one parent may uh, be more involved than the other in uh, the whole technology realm. And so we, we send a lot of mis- messages. Are parents uh, underplaying that- the, the danger here? I alluded before the break to the notion that my father insisted on knowing who my playmates were, who their parents were. And by the way, if you're going to be over at so-and-so's house, I want a telephone number. I mean, was that overprotective for that era? I'm talking 40 years ago. And if that was overprotective for them, considering what's lurking on the other side of a cell phone or the Internet these days, my goodness. That's right. So what we do know is that uh, that was probably not overprotective. That showed love and care and protection. And right now there's a whole other level, of invisible level of communication, connection, uh, that's happening via uh, the Internet and online activity, that parents uh, probably, for the most part, I'm always amazed how many parents really um, 
aren't, aren't privy to how much is actually going on. You know, how many kids have received a sex texting? How many kids have had bully behavior online? So I, I just want to open up the awareness. I want to keep this so kids don't feel ashamed and they can talk about it. And, you know, developmentally, um, uh, developmental stages, the research has shown us that overstimulating the brain uh, with nonstop high-intensity blue screen activity um, really over time uh, can create what we call a craving brain. That brain wants more and more stimuli. We know boys are more prone to this. And it can really set you up to have an addictive-type brain and craving more and more. So in addition to some of the obvious things like uh, pedophiles trying to make connection with children, things of this sort, uh, there, there's this whole layer of, of exposing them. And, and I guess it's true then that there, there, there are levels of maturity which our children need to be prepared to what they're exposed to. That isn't to say that eventually they're not going to run into this. I mean, uh, how many of us listening right now have innocently sat down to the computer and, and, and Googled a, a cooking recipe and all of a sudden, my goodness, got hit with porn? Jarell is raising his hand. It happens all okay. the time. And, yeah. and yet to understand, like this one recent uh, junior high school, half of the student body got disciplined because they were swapping uh, naked photos of each other. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, yep. it, is, it is a slippery soap. And, and does it say to parents like Elaine and others out there, uh, you need to take time to get educated and realize that there's a lot more going on and capable of taking place in the digital realm than most of us are really uh, aware of? There's a lot more going on, isn't there, than what we're aware of. Uh, we do something called a digital dinner one night a week. It's okay to talk about anything related to technology. The kids can take charge, and we sit there and learn about things that they know about so that it helps us. <laughs> so, and we also want to promote to have one day of technology detox where you just set it all away and down, and you're not involved with it for a day, and you, you learn how to – do a board game. That's a board game, not a boring game. Uh, you begin to do things that you wouldn't normally have done. You're not talking like people actually sitting and conversing with each other face to face, are you? Well, I, I knew that I had a problem in my home some time ago, and my two boys were at the dinner table texting back and forth under the table to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we sure appreciate the time tonight. Thank you also, Elaine, for your input. And uh, let me mention, by the way, that Dr. Jantz's book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing, um, is uh, available. And uh, can you get it through your website as well, Dr. Jantz? Visit us at aplaceofhope.com, yes. Excellent. Good good resource for more information and, of course, to get a copy of the book. And, again, you know, this this is a topic that I realize for any of us over the age of Twenty, uh, uh, we're, we're still playing catch up, and what comes naturally to the kids is a big learning curve for all of us. But be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers that are out there. This case, certainly out of Dallas, is at the extreme, and yet demonstrative of the fact that this parent was simply doing their job to protect their daughter because uncontrolled, unfettered, uh, this can be a very dangerous. Um, manipulative tool in the hands of the wrong people. And the kind of stuff that your kids can be exposed to can be very dangerous. I'm not suggesting that it's not great technology. We all enjoy it. Life has gotten a lot easier at many levels, a lot more complicated at many others. But uh, it needs to be a case where, parent, you need to be actively engaged and aware. And I like what Dr. Jan suggests. How about a disconnect it, turn it off, 
evening for the entire family. Dad's not responding to emails from work. Mom is not texting, you know, friend down the street who wants a copy of a recipe or trying to coordinate, you know, the the, the, the you know, who's taking who with the to soccer practice next Saturday. The kids are not texting each other, sitting right across the table from each other and texting each other. Can you believe it? How about just good old-fashioned face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation? Remember how that goes? You say something and I listen, then I say something when you listen and then we repeat. Fascinating thought, isn't it? wonder how that goes. All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jantz. Again, the book, Hooked the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. You can get it on his website at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.